This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. Dr. Alexandra Phelan is a faculty member at the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University School of Medicine and adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. A global expert in pandemics, I caught up with Alex for a chinwag about all things related to COVID-19, including the nature of the threat we face from the virus, the challenges coordinating government responses, the vital role universal healthcare plays in stopping pandemics, why the Chinese Communist Party's delays at the start were so costly, and what Australia and the world should be doing right now to stop the spread of the virus further. Uh, as a serious note, please make sure you are listening to authorities and taking the most up-to-date advice as this crisis unfolds. The situation may have changed by the time you listen to this podcast. Less seriously, uh, if you are enjoying the show, please be sure to re-reviewing it. Uh, the podcast that really helps spread the word uh, about the show and pushes it up the, uh, the various algorithms on iTunes and others. I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, welcome to Diplomates, Dr. Alexandra Phelan. Um, from uh, the United States. She's Australian, but she's joining me uh, via the magic of the internet, which has not yet crashed uh, with all the traffic that's on it. Um, Alex, can you hear me? Welcome to the show. I can, Misha. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, pleasure's all mine and the listeners. Um, I might start, there's a lot of places you can start with this topic relating to, we're obviously going to be talking a lot about coronavirus or COVID-19, um, which is a much more sinister sounding name. Um, Firstly, maybe you could just start by explaining what exactly the virus is. I mean, a lot of people say it's a bad flu, it's a, it's a killer virus, is it somewhere in between? Maybe you could start there with a, with a short definition. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll first start with sort of two terms. We've got COVID-19, which describes the disease, so when people are ill, and then we have SARS-CoV-2, which is the name that has been given to the virus itself, the coronavirus. And you might hear in there that SARS-CoV-2, so SARS is SARS coronavirus 2, um, is because it's uh, re- closely related to the coronavirus that we saw um, in the outbreak, the SARS outbreak uh, back in 2002-2003. Uh, but it is a different new novel coronavirus. Um, there are... Um, Four coronaviruses that normally circulate during the year, um, they're sort of a, a type of virus, a coronavirus, and they normally cause mild illness, so like mild colds. Um, but we do know of two before this virus, more serious um, forms of, of coronavirus, and that's, that's SARS that I mentioned, and MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, is, is caused by the MERS coronavirus. Um and those are two diseases, two viruses that showed us that coronaviruses uh, can actually cause this serious disease. And this third novel coronavirus, um, also this sort of severe coronavirus, is um, the another example of a coronavirus that can cause quite serious respiratory illness, being COVID nineteen. Right. Okay. And so, in terms of um you know, the next question I think is useful to get, as long as we're doing a quick round of definitions, a pandemic, what is a pandemic and how do we define one? Great question. So um, a pandemic is actually, it, it's not necessarily a legal term or a specific technical click. It's more a descriptive term. And a pandemic is simply a way of describing an outbreak or an epidemic that has gone over the entire world. 
And there are different definitions that people use to describe what is over the entire world. Some definitions are simply that it's to two or three continents. Um, some definitions say everywhere except Antarctica. Um, but essentially it describes the spread of a disease rather than the severity of a disease. Um, and as we look at the cases around the world of this, of the, of coronavirus is it, it's quite clear that this is a pandemic now when the who uh said uh, confirmed that this was a pandemic uh the other week um it didn't necessarily change anything from say an international law or a, a governance perspective there may be some contracts around the world that might have the word pandemic in them and that's a, a triggering event um or some pieces of domestic legislation that have pandemic as a triggering event. But as a, as a uh, term, it's more a descriptor rather than any sort of significant uh, legal designation. There is a term that is significant legally, and that's a public health emergency of international concern or FIIC. And that was declared on January 30th by the World Health Organization Director General um, under international law. And so that we're now you know, officially in a in a pandemic and we've got this uh, mm -hmm. rather severe version of the coronavirus, I mean, it's hard to know how worried to be. I mean, can you give a sense of me? Because there's so many you know, different projections and you know, people are making various calculations as to uh, mortality rates based on data out of China and other places. I mean, how worried mm -hmm. should people be? Because it seems that, you know, the early sentiment, um, you know, certainly in Australia and I think around the world, was people were relatively sanguine about it. How worried should people be and you know, how concerned should we be about the various projections? Yeah, so um, worry versus being informed is a, is, is a difficult one. Um, I work in pandemic preparedness. This has been my life for the last 10 years. And so for me, the idea of worry is, is not necessarily a good one. Um, I think, though, um, how seriously should we take this is very seriously. And the, the reason being is... Um, I mean, models are models and there are limits to what models can actually demonstrate and what models can factor in. Um, and uh, there are lots of different models that are being used for this outbreak. But what we are learning based on the observed data and the, the, the I guess the consistency we're seeing in a range of different models that are coming out of this um, is that this is going to have, beyond what it already has, a significant um, human health and life impact. If we start to compare it to other, um, you know, comparisons can be useful to, to get a sense of things, right? Um, if we start compare some of the data that we do have, and again, this is just observed and this is likely to change, um, we do have uh, some early, uh, what we call case fatality rates. They're, they're a form of mortality rate that look at out of everyone who gets the disease, how many people actually die. Um, and we're, this is being updated because every country and every situation will change, you know, the, the, the factors that, that cause whether people die or not die. Um, and so there's an average case fatality rate of about 3.4%. Out of everyone that gets it, 3.4% will pass away. But that, that change is based on the situation. In, in Italy, it's looking like the, the case fatality rate is sitting up at that sort of higher end, maybe 3.4, perhaps even a little bit higher. Um, but uh, in other countries we're seeing, say in South Korea, we're seeing it sort of at the lower end, sort of closer to one. Um, now, that being said, that number, 1%, is still um, still significant. If we compare to sort of past 
outbreaks. And obviously, this is the first time we've had a COVID-19 outbreak. This is a you know new new type of coronavirus. If we look at say influenza pandemics, and they're perhaps the most useful comparison, but they're you know they're just they're not re- you can't really compare them exactly because they're different diseases. Um, and different different search circumstances. But if I said we've got this 3.4% global case fatality rate, we look at, um, say, seasonal influenza. Seasonal influenza each year has, um, you know, around a, a 1% case fatality rate typically. I mean, it sort of changes a little bit. And that does have a significant health burden. Um, if we look at, say, the H19, so 2009 influenza pandemic, swine flu, which people may remember, that was about 0.1%. So if we go from 0.1% to about you know 1%, and then we're looking at something that's between 1% and 3.4% or so, depending on the circumstances, we're looking at a pretty um, significant uh, global health, health burden. The 1918 Spanish flu, to sort of think back to that, uh, which killed more people than both wars combined, had a case fatality rate of about 2%. So if we're hovering at around that 2% and we get global spread and we get that 2% globally, and again, it depends all on the situation in each country, what measures countries take to protect their citizens and protect the health of citizens will affect it. But if we're looking at that, those sorts of figures and we are in this, this is going to be a marathon, this is not going to be a sprint, um, the global impact and the health impact of this outbreak is currently expected to be significant well that's certainly sobering um to those statistics as compared to the spanish flu which killed um you know it was tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of people um so i'm just curious you talked about the kind of the the responses and and sort of you know the impact one of the things that people are talking about a lot is this so-called flattening of the curve which is essentially governments trying to reduce the speed of the rate of infections i mean how much can that impact on how the health system responds and preventing you know, the, the health system being overrun and not having access to respirators, et cetera. How critical is that to the response? Yeah, so this is what makes this um, this uh, this virus particularly concerning is the ability to overwhelm health services because the when you do have the severe form of illness, which still appears to be only about 20% of everyone who gets it gets this severe form because, I mean, that's a really important point to make. It looks like sort of 80% of the population will have a mild illness, so it's 20% who are severe. But if we're seeing 20% of the population with severe illness, um, that is guaranteed healthcare system overwhelm. And what we're seeing in Italy, for example, uh, what we saw in Wuhan specifically, not necessarily in, in other parts of China, but in Wuhan, in Italy, and we may likely, we are likely to see in other countries around the world, um, that the intensiveness of the and the severity of of, of care needed um, is what makes that healthcare overwhelm. So this flattening the curve, the the idea here that is you know a, a term that you know those of us in pandemic preparedness have worked with, and it's wonderful to see this is rolling out and people understanding it. But what it's worth understanding is whilst it's about reducing. Um, it's about reducing the number of people with the severity of the illness over time. So reducing it from being um, everyone overwhelming the healthcare system at once and trying to spread it out and delay the people who are getting the severe illness as long as possible so that the healthcare system can cope. One of the things that's not reflected in a lot of those graphs is healthcare services are already overwhelmed in most places in terms of our ICUs, um, in terms of our beds, 
um, around the world, governments have consistently underfunded national health systems or non-nationalized health systems. And so we're already kind of at healthcare capacity or very close to. So even if we are doing this, this mitigation, this flattening of the curve by focusing on slowing but not necessarily stopping the spread of an epidemic, um, we're still likely to, re, uh, to meet, um, meet that sort of peak healthcare demand at that, that level. It's just about making it, uh, making it as less, as mitigating that as much as, as possible. So that's where that, those mitigation strategies are really key. But then the other strategy that we've seen, we sort of talk about is this idea of, of suppression, which is not just about um, mitigating and reducing the impact, but also actually stopping the spread to people. So that's where we start to talk about things like social distancing, which we can get into. And the idea of social distancing is you try to prevent people who are infected from coming into contact with people who are susceptible um, and that includes people who may not have severe illness but could then pass it on to people who are vulnerable, um, which includes older populations. Uh, we say older, you know, we're looking at maybe over 65 as a, the data again is coming in, um, but also people with underlying medical conditions that make them more at risk. Um, and, again, we're lo a lot of this data is observational and on the fly, um, and so it's likely to change, uh, and that has to inform government policy as well. And so, you know, that's really kind of critical then how the government responds. Can you give mm. a sense? I mean, we, you've mentioned Italy a bit, but maybe what Italy got wrong and then maybe some of the countries that seem to have maybe tackled the challenge. I mean, China had a very aggressive response, essentially locking down Thai province and then having people um, essentially report to fever clinics, et cetera. Um, is, is there, you know, are you able to sort of give a very kind of high-level you know, delineation between who do, who's doing it well and who isn't and what the key factors mm. there are? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, let's start with a good example. A good example is South Korea, and they've been touted as a good example. And there's, this may change over time, but to, to date, South Korea have appeared to reduce the spread, um, have a healthcare system more able to cope, um, and have managed to start to reduce the, the cases uh, going, going forward from here. What South Korea implemented was a bit of this multi-pronged strategy that looked at both mitigation and suppression. Um, so what they did is implemented um, significant testing processes whereby individuals could essentially access tests um, to get tested, to check if they were infected, regardless of their sort of illness and their symptoms or their travel history. And South Korea was able to run uh, 20,000 tests a day at some point. And that included things like drive-up car testing facilities, um, as well as actively testing individuals. Now, if an individual tested positive in South Korea, they were essentially put into um, sort of a uh, self-quarantine, uh, uh, sorry, self-isolation. Um, and there were a range of different measures that the South Korean government used that uh, helped sort of uh, implement that which may or may not transfer to other places. So they used extensive um, sort of uh, mobile phone surveillance and monitoring um, to, to help enforce that, which, you know, I, I think that is a that depends on the acceptability of a target population because at the end of the day, public health requires public trust. You don't want to be doing anything that undermines people's willingness to engage with the government. Um, 
So they, they implemented that, that testing and surveillance, and so it meant that people who were infected were taken away, like they, they were at home, they took themselves away from the potential risk of spreading it to other people. And that meant that um, they were able to then, uh, and, and coupled with broad social distancing, so um, meaning that people weren't necessarily going out to restaurants and bars and they were, people were working from home, um, engaging those sorts of policies so that even if someone hadn't got a test, you're reducing the, opportun the opportunities for transmission before someone knows whether they are um, sick or not. So the, the testing um, coupled with these social distancing measures were incredibly effective. Um, if we now look to, say, Italy, um, Italy started its surveillance and testing uh, significantly too late. Um, the social distancing measures that were put in place were put in place probably two weeks too late. And the, the thing to, I guess, think about with, with pandemics and when we do this pandemic preparedness, you know, we say that um, when you think it's too early, you're probably just about to get too late. Um, the whole point of these social distancing measures is to uh, have it in place before you have transmission occurring. Because remember, when you actually are doing a test and you're finding people, people are turning up and they're sick, and so you're doing a test based on them being sick, not, not like South Korea where they've, they've just got testing happening. If you're waiting for people to get sick, you're probably two weeks down the track already. There's been two weeks of... Um, you know, there's, we still don't know exactly the details of pre-symptomatic transmission, like how long before people show symptoms can they transmit it. That's still getting that precise data, but it appears to be an element here. Um, once people are showing up and they're sick, it's already a bit too late. Um, and so this, this sort of a week and two-week timeframes we're seeing sort of roll across the world. And so in Italy, you know, once these measures were implemented, you know, sure, they might have assisted in bringing down the curve, but by that stage, the system was prime for overwhelm. And that's what we've seen in the Italian ICU units in the north of the country. There are some more nuanced sort of distribution of ICU beds within the country that could, could assist, but um, you know, the, the overwhelm has occurred because these measures were, were put in uh, too late. And, you know, Italy was the first country in Europe to really be hit, so it's, it's also not surprising that, they, that these measures were put in, put in too late. I do want to sort of take a moment to mention Wuhan. In China, in other cities, in Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, etc., they implemented these sorts of social distancing measures very similar to what we see saw in South Korea, and that was very successful. Um, Wuhan is a special category, and I think it's really important to distinguish the successful measures done in other Chinese cities from Wuhan. By the time Wuhan implemented their their lockdown, which is a phrase, and if we look at what the, what it technically was, it was a cordon sanitaire, which is not a quarantine. It's essentially a geographic area that has a rope tied around it and said no one can come and no one can go. By the time that had been implemented, there was also already significant local transmission occurring. Um, the impact of the cordon sanitaire in Wuhan appears to have potentially delayed the spread not within China, you know, this was happening during Lunar New Year travel periods, but perhaps could have delayed the spread internationally by a couple of days. Now, the question is at what cost those couple of days, because we don't know how many people in Wuhan died from secondary causes as a result of the lockdown from the healthcare system overwhelm. And, the, you know, the appropriate counterfactual would be what if Wuhan, back when they had the first notifications from doctors at the end of December or during December, 
um, and early January, if we're you know being being flexible with the timing there, if they had implemented social distancing and extensive testing, gotten those diagnostic tests up and running in time, and, and had that in place, could it have been a very different picture? And I think the the that is a, a counterfactual we'll have to explore in the in the after reviews of, of this outbreak. And so, you, you sort of touched there um, about you know the, the the importance of quick response and, and not waiting too long. But you know, as you as I think you know from an Australian point of view, we're watching the world seemingly going into lockdown. Is it inevitable that every country is going to be locked down in some way, or is that not inevitable? Because one of the things I'm struggling to understand, just as a complete layman in this space is you know is is lockdown the really the best and most effective way of dealing this you know in, in a in, in a social distancing way but in an almost complete social distancing sense and um yeah you know, or can it be me- measured and mitigated in different ways mm. so i think the first thing i'd say is the term lockdown is getting used to describe just relatively normal social social distancing measures that we would say are quite legitimate, as well as very punitive, arbitrary and authoritarian measures, because the term lockdown mean, you know, doesn't mean anything, right? Um, it's a descriptive term. Um, well, for example, in LA, right, they've just now yeah. closed restaurants and bars to the public. I mean, this is in Australia, yeah. we've just said five, you know, I think it was no, no football games, but I think it was quite stark to see cities you know, around the world now, yeah. you know, where their restaurants are shut, bars are shut any sort of social event is shut. Um. Yeah, so that's, that's happened here in New York as of tomorrow. Um, we're, in, we're in all restaurants, bars, etc. closed. In reality, that's already been happening to some degree. Um, so if we're thinking about that, right, so if, if we want to use lockdown to mean um, uh, a few things, I think the measures that we want to be seeing are working from home policies, that should be implemented. Um, you know, it's already here in New York. That sh- that is that is getting people working from home, um, if they can, because not everyone can and not every business can. Um, but where people can work from home, uh, getting people no gatherings of of. I mean, I think the current in please feel free to correct me was a uh, hundred people or five hundred perhaps even. I mean, that's way too. I mean. 20 people versus 500 people is, you know, that's an arbitrary distinction. Really, it's about removing people having contact. So I would say even getting to the point where people aren't having, you know, aren't meeting up with people with more than five people. Like that, that is that is what we need to be wow. sort of reducing this transmission, right? Um, obviously, in families, that's not necessarily, you know, feasible, but, you know, I wouldn't be having a dinner party. Um, the So people not gathering, if they are going outside, you know, making sure they've got that physical distance. Um, and I, But I think, though, when we start to think about things like schools, which this becomes tricky because it might seem counterintuitive, schools and universities, um, universities I think there is more of a justification for, for um, cancelling, moving cancel classes to online and reducing that, that's, that uh, contact. But for schools, um, one of the things that needs to be considered in this process is the fact that if you cancel schools, um, a parent has to be able to stay home and not all parents have jobs where they will be able to work from home. And in particular, the workforce that we are particularly concerned about are our healthcare workforce. One of the most direct ways to stymie, say, the US healthcare workforce, and I'm, I'm not as across the Australian data, is if um, if single parents have to stay home and look after their kids because 
as a significant number of healthcare workers, particularly nurses, are single parents with primary care responsibilities to stay home and look after kids. So it's closing a school. Uh, and the alternative might be to be looked after their grandparents, who we know are a high-risk group, whereas children, thankfully, on the current data, do not appear to be high-risk. So closing schools, particularly, say, primary schools, can have really significant negative impacts on your ability to respond. Um, and so whilst it might seem counterintuitive, those the closing of schools needs to be really well thought through and, and considered in regards to who are who are the parents that might have to stay home to look after the kids. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that that's why as a social distancing measure in a lockdown, that may not actually be the appropriate thing. There are lots of in-betweens, right? You can stagger recess, you can stagger arrival times, um, you can, re you know, increase recess times. Um, you know, that, that's why it's a lot more nuanced than I think the discussion has been to date in, in a lot of the uh, dialogue in Australia. Um, but, you know, certainly mass gatherings, restaurants, bars, you know, there is a, a social responsibility on all of us that if we take measures now, we could save our grandparents, our parents um, and our friends and other loved ones who, who may be particularly vulnerable to this outbreak. And so... How this so called social distancing, or you know, a, a, maybe it's moderate lockdown, or you know, the, the, this really mm. kind of like closing down of large parts of the economy. I mean, what's not clear to me, at least, is how long this would last for, and what the aftermath looks like. So, I mean, is it something? Yeah. It's two, 14 days, it's eight weeks, but then at the end of that period, are we sort of through the worst of it, or can it sort of spike again? That that bit's mm. not clear to me either, and I think that's causing a lot of confusion, at least in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Um, from a pandemic planning point of view, we always put up front the economic costs of a pandemic, and um, the reality is, the more people who are getting sick and ill, and the bigger the you know the you're, if you don't mitigate and reduce the spread, the bigger the impact to the economy. So it's like there's accepting there's going to be a loss. It's just how much of a loss. Um, so in terms of the timeframes and how that, that factors in, um, as I said, models are models and they're not necessarily, um, you know, they're not forecasts, they're not, they're not Nostradamus or Cassandra, but they, the, some modelling that came out overnight from a group at Imperial and their work has been quite, um, has been informative for the UK government response and other responses previously, but um, which is that we would likely need to be using a combination of mitigation and suppression, so social distancing as well as um, reducing, you know, peak healthcare demand um, f until we have a vaccine and that becomes widely available. And we know from other vaccines, we're probably looking at the 12 to 18 months. So there has to be some sort of combination with this, uh, with both measures. Now, how does that work in practice? Well, we saw that in South Korea, we've seen, and also in parts of China, we've seen, um, you know, this, this, the ability to bring cases under control and get case numbers low enough that you can just you can go back to um, to perhaps uh, the testing model of you know watching to see if someone's you know testing if someone's sick, um, and then isolating uh, isolating them and quarantining their contacts. Um, so because suppression is possible in the short term, um, if we could potentially loosen um, interventions and mitigation and, and measures, um, provided that we don't see a rebound. So it all depends on how good the system in place is for that period in between. 
um, until, and so we could have sort of these temporary relaxations in short windows, um, but, you know, it needs to be able to switch, put the switch back on if we see case numbers moving again. Um, and that can be relatively disruptive, obviously, uh, but that might, be a, that might be a way of easing the economic and social costs of, of interventions that are being used um, over that period until we have a vaccine. Um, a vaccine isn't guaranteed. Um, we do have incredibly, uh, there's a number of vaccines that are sort of potential candidate vaccines out there. Um, but we've got to remember that it's the only measure, the only tool we actually have in our power right now as humans together against this virus is our solidarity and our ability to, uh, to socially distance. And until we have a vaccine and it's available, um, that's, it's going to be our solidarity that is going to be what, what keeps us safe. And, well, it sounds like people really should be digging in for the long haul. So maybe switching now just to what individuals should be doing, social distancing, what should people be doing as of now, working from home clearly, but are there specific measures people should be taking in terms of preparing themselves? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, some of the measures we've seen, say, in Italy and what we're seeing here in New York is, um, you know, closing of bars and restaurants and people working from home, but keeping grocery stores and pharmacies open, you know, so people can still go get food. And so there's not this sort of rush and panic to, to um, you know, have a, have a you know, 18-month prep. Um, that, that's not necessarily what's going to be required. Um, having, a, you know, a stockpile of, of food and to sort of get through the next little you know the next uh two weeks is a, is a good way of doing it or having you know to get through the the in in sort of periods and bursts and that way when people run out it's sort of much more staggered and people can go to the shops and um and um and get groceries in terms of other additional measures i think the most important thing and this is for, particularly for people who are not in high risk categories who are healthy uh who are younger um so like under under 60 is to realise that um, they have perhaps the most important role to play in stopping the spread of this outbreak and that that is more important than going to a bar with mates or um, having having friends over. Um, and, that you know, we're very lucky this has happened at a time where we have tools where we can chat with our friends, you know, on, on you know, through video and audio link. And, and there are some, you know, really innovative and creative ways we can keep ourselves um, not socially isolated whilst we're doing this social distancing. Um, I think the other sort of very individualised measures are clearly the washing your hands often and properly. I think people are, are getting that message. If you do feel sick, to contact the um, contact uh, the relevant uh, hotline that's made available or healthcare service to um, check with them. If you do have any symptoms, um, to stay home. The reality is, is we say mild illness, up to 80% of mild illness. That still can include pneumonia. Um, so you can still get pretty sick and pretty unwell, but you're not necessarily at the point of, of hospitalisation and needing the, the healthcare service. And so I think there's going to have to be a, an understanding that, you know, it's not going to be pleasant for everyone that gets it and has a mild form. It's not, you know, some people will just get a sniffle, some people will get quite sick. But what we need is that the, our ICUs and our hospitals are available for people who are going to die without that, without that support. So I think that individual recognition of, um, of, of what is serious and what's not serious. And I think the final thing is 
we all have a part to play in protecting the most vulnerable members of our community, not just in our behaviours, but also ensuring that they're not socially isolated. They may not, you know, our elderly population or people with disabilities may not, or um, other other members of the community, just anyone in the community might not have um, have the social connections um, and all the support systems to be able to go get groceries and, and do things like that. So I think ensuring that we're protecting those individuals, and that includes things like, you know, ensuring that sick leave is not a limit on people's ability to stay home, ensuring that casualised workforce in Australia have access to sick leave and have access to uh, to payment protections. You know, there are lots of models around the world where the governments actually gave uh, gave handouts, gave gave uh, amounts of money, um, sort of set stipends, and not just not just sort of what we've seen in Australia so far, but to a broader range of people. Um, and I think those sorts of measures we really need to be to be thinking about our restaurant workers, our casualised workforce um, that uh, that need to be part of this because we need people to feel we need people to be safe in staying home um, and not feel the economic individual economic pressures to to have to be going to work. No, I absolutely agree with you around the the, the issue around uh, insecure work and the lack of access to healthcare. Certainly, a concern in Australia, and I know it's it's, it's an even bigger concern in countries like the United States. In terms of you know, reassuring people, um, hmm. you know, we, we saw, I mean, I think at first everyone was having a bit of a laugh about this, you know, the toilet mm-hmm. paper uh, crisis um, that seemed to have started in Australia and now spread around the world. But, you know, the, the, the prospect of panic buying is now very real. We're seeing queues for things around the world and, you know, in the United States, people queue for guns, which is concerning. Hmm. Um, do you think, you know, we've done enough to reassure people? Because there's a balance between, I guess, scaring the bejesus out of people um, mm. And also uh, making sure that they're properly you know, aware of the facts. So I'm just kind of, how have you got that? Balance yeah. Right? Yeah. I am. I mean, the way the it, it is a really challenging example of science and political and governance communication. Um, there are people who are experts at this, right? People who are experts in how to communicate that tension. They're and all on Twitter, I think. Right? We, Um, and I think we should if we saw government engaging these experts um, you know in in fact in in our pandemic plans that is right up there in our top 10 priorities is have have a have expert communicators for this exact issue right so what people should be doing is um, you know having enough Food and supplies that they feel that they can, you know, stay at home for the for the two weeks for the for the if, in case they are sick and they stay at home for that entire period, um, and uh, recognizing that um, hoarding is, you know, we, we you see these posters during World War Two, right? Hoarding is unpatriotic. You know, we're kind of in that sort of period, right? Where this is um, take only what you need to keep you and your family safe and you might need to change some behaviors uh, to be able to take less than than what you would normally normally need um and i think that's where there's also a role for government in communicating what's going to happen in terms of supply chains and logistics about access to food and and how those supply chains are going to be kept active so people know that hey in two weeks time when i'm you know i've spent my period of isolation i need to go out and get some more supplies, get some more food and whatever that they know that they can. Um, you know, in New York, we've got delivery, all, re- uh, not all a number of restaurants have shifted to, to go and delivery so they can keep their staff on board. 
um, and can continue to provide food um, and done in a way where it's pick up and drop off so you don't have any individual contact between between the people delivering and people who are at home. Um, and so in facilitating those sorts of um, those sorts of uh, supplies and, and facilitating a, a much clearer communication is really key to addressing that balance. It's a hard one, but it's 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 possible, right? And so, what's the role here? I mean, how concerned are you as, a, as someone as an expert? And I'll, I mean, I was half joking about Twitter. It seems to me that every single person now is an expert in infection rates and uh, global health mm-hmm. policy. But um, you know, how concerned are you about the role of social media in driving fake news and being able to, to you know distinguish between what's happening and what's not happening? And also, I think. It's very difficult for people as well with the flood of information from around the world, not just in their own jurisdiction. Mm. How, how do you mm. see those challenges in amongst all this? Yeah, so I think there are two elements here. The first element is um, accuracy of information and the second element is mental health. So the accuracy of information um, is uh, we've become accustomed to receiving information from multiple sources, reliable and unreliable. And over the last four years in particular, there's been a lot of discussion about how do you stop um, unreliable information. The, where do you get reliable information? One of the advantages of a public health threat is we do have already established authorities on public health, and that's um, the World Health Organization, that's the Centers for Disease Control in, for the US, that's the um, different public health departments in Australia. Um, whether and I think the you know for I, I've obviously been up to date on what the Victorian public the Victorian Department of Health has been communicating. Um, WHO and CDC have lots of you know really shareable memes on social media. Media, uh, well they're not actually memes they're just they're just images, but um, really shareable ways of communicating accurate information. So if you are using Twitter and Facebook, I would I would make sure you're following WHO. Um, or and your your state as well as the federal health department, um, because they have been engaging in really active and proactive communication on those on those tools, um, and I would limit where you get your information to those sources as much as possible. Partly because of the first reason for information getting correct information, <clears throat> but also the second reason um, the for mental health. A pandemic is a scary thing. There's a lot of uncertainty. And in that uncertainty, um, we can get worries and fears as well as misinformation. Um, There is constant information coming from other countries, um, accurate and not accurate. There's constant levels of panic and fear and people telling other people not to fear and not to panic and dismissing what are quite legitimate concerns in many respects. So I think if you are not working at the on the outbreak directly, um, and it's not necessarily directly relevant to what you need to be doing in your day-to-day, apart from what you are doing to protect yourself and your family and your community. Limiting the information you get to perhaps once a day, maybe it's the news broadcast at night or it's um, you know uh, even radio at a you know, certain time of day or to the WHO or CDC or you know wherever you're getting your, your news and limiting it because... I can tell you someone who's been following this outbreak since 31 December 2019, it can very quickly become overwhelming and very quickly um, that sense of lack of control, like what can you do as an individual? So I would focus on those steps that we spoke about um, and limit limit your time on social media um, insofar as you can 
while staying connected with your friends and family and loved ones. Well, staying off social media in general is probably good advice, so we should uh, double down <laughs> on that. <laughs> so, yeah, you talked a lot about governments um, and the important role that they play here. I mean, unfortunately, in some instances, we've seen some, I think, rather poor leadership. I mean, what, mm-hmm. how helpful or unhelpful do you think pol- the political class has been around the world on this issue? Who's doing it well, who's not? And, and what mm. should they be really doing to, to, you know, restore a sense of calm to this? You know, I think one of the best examples that we've seen uh, in terms of political communication and political messaging and leadership um, is uh, is in Singapore. Um, we saw uh, the Singapore government very early come out, say what what um, what they're going to do, very clear messaging, um, balanced um uh, and you know, I think that there's a couple of rules for for political and, and health 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 communication that we we try to follow. You say firstly, what do you know? What you don't know? What you're doing to find out? And when you're going to speak with people next? Um, I've seen uh, say Victorian Premier Andrews um, do exactly that framework in a number of the messaging. Um, and I'm sure there are plenty of other examples um, within at different levels of government in, in Australia as well. Uh, so I think clear clear messaging and leadership up front and early uh, is really key. Um, and uh, you know Singapore is a great example. Uh, we look at WHO. I mean I've I've openly critiqued them on a number of different issues about with this outbreak, um, particularly on on human rights and international law norms um, as well as public health messaging, but. Um, to their credit, one of the most incredible things WHO and Director General Tedros and others have been doing is these daily updates to press, um, really clear messaging. Again, what we know, what we don't know, what we're doing to find out and when we'll be back. Um, and I think those, those are some really great examples of, of communication. And it really shows how um, communication is so central to leadership. And when people don't hear from their leaders, they get worried um, and I think having clarity of messaging is one of my biggest concerns with the current outbreak back in Australia and how it's how it's being dealt with. Um, yeah. Well, just expanding on the, the Australian response, I mean, it seems that we are at least, you know, somewhat behind the rest of the world, maybe by mm-hmm. you know, fortune of our geographic isolation, ability to control our borders. I mean, what would your advice be to you know scott morrison and, and the rest of the authorities are responsible for this you know what should we be doing urgently so the first thing i would say is actually is uh is, is to um push back a little bit on that pathogens don't respect borders so australia's delay australia the fact that australia is a little bit behind in terms of timing is not factor of border security um in fact we you know at one point we can maybe at at another date talk about you know the how border enforcement can actually make things worse um or perceived border enforcement but the it is potentially a factor of our geographic isolation in terms of just number of of travelers from the relevant parts of the world um that has made a big big uh step um Sorry, I got so distracted with making that particular point, I forgot the rest of your question, Misha. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's an important point to make. And, and as I said, I, I'm more than happy to be corrected on this topic. I do not no, plan to no, be no. But um, no, no. So I'll just what would you be advising the government in Australia to be doing um, if, you know, for whatever reason, we do seem to have mm. some time still up our sleeve? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's spot on. So what we are, what we have right now is that um, that time up our sleeve. There is already local transmission in Australia. 
Um, and so we need to start uh, recognising that we need to have measures in place now that address that, that social distance and uh, for people to be um, to limit that local transmission. We can't rely on, on trying to control who comes in, in and out of the country. The, it, it is already here. It is already in Australia. So what we what needed what is needed is I, I think the um, there should be a move to uh, issue advisories about limiting all mass gatherings. So I would say you know over twenty people. Um, people should and this is you know advisory and I'm deliberately using the word voluntary and advisory here because we can sort of talk about mandatory and criminal in, in a moment. Um, there should be a prioritisation of testing. We're already at risk of running out of certain reagents, as I understand in Australia, so I think guaranteeing or uh, shoring up our supply chain to actually conduct testing and continue to proactively test anyone who is showing symptoms regardless of their travel history um, and uh, and perhaps facilitating testing through things like drive-through testing, um, setting up specified clinic, continuing to set up specified clinics, um, and uh, and to, to have that testing for people who have symptoms or who are, are contacts of people who have symptoms or are confirmed. We then also need to be looking at our own measures. We should be looking at a encouragement of all countries, uh, all companies and people who can working from home, if they can work from home. Um, I think the universities make sense also to be shifting to a, a university from home model where applicable, where okay. The School closures, as I mentioned earlier, is a little bit more tricky, a little bit more difficult, and I think that should be thought through uh, very carefully because of the risk it will have on our healthcare workforce um, and our vulnerable elderly populations if, if those measures are implemented. Um, the next thing we need to be doing is preparing our healthcare system. We do not have enough ventilators in Australia to cope with this. We do not have enough ICU beds in Australia to cope with this if we if we have transmission at what we're what what is modelled uh, in in other countries and what we're seeing in other countries. Um, what we need to be doing is seeing is can we increase those direct um, items? Can we do we have ability to have more get more ventilators? Um, and get more beds. And that includes being ready to prepare. Being when I say ready, I mean within the next two weeks. If it looks, if if we don't see any particular shift in transmission, being ready to be able to have our hospitals in surge capacity. And um, that that includes um, cutting elective surgeries um, and getting ready to sort of have our system and perhaps already, depending on what capacity is like in hospitals now, already be switching to have our hospitals, um, in, in crisis standards of care, which is that's when we're determining who gets access to ventilators. We need to have those plans in place now because you don't want to be making those ethical decisions on the fly. Um, and, uh, and to be having our hospitals ready and supported, ready to go for when the surge does hit. We're going to be seeing, I think the thing I would say to people is, do not be surprised and alarmed as we see cases doubling or exponentially growing because that's exactly what we're expecting the virus to do. So when you see breaking news cases have doubled overnight or whatever, that is that is expected. And we are that what you see today is two weeks after the infection occurred. So we need to be putting these measures in place now so we are stopping that spread. And it may seem like it's too early. But that's exactly when we're talking about a pandemic, that is exactly when you need to be putting these measures in place. 
you know, I think the cancellation of, of mass sporting events, you know, also that's very disappointing. I think they're absolutely the right decision. Um, and I think we need to be moving to those measures now. Now, I mentioned the mandatory and criminal things. I've Something that has concerned me is, um, you know, so I worked on these laws in my in my undergraduate law dissertation was on the on these laws in Australia. When you use punitive criminal laws, you push people away from the public health system. You push them towards the criminal system. You push people towards avoiding interaction with authorities, uh, whether they be police or public health. Because you don't want to admit that you have it, so you're better to hide from it. Absolutely. And that's when it goes underground. That's when we see transmission, right? Because mm-hmm. people don't want to engage. I was deeply disappointed to hear the Prime Minister say, uh, talking about dobbing in your mate who comes into work to the police. That is that is a strategy for underground transmission in Australia that we cannot track. And it is not the right message because we are about to go into a pandemic, most likely in Australia, though, you know, we are in, in an epidemic. We are most likely to be drawn into uh, to the scale that we're seeing around the world to some degree. We may be able to flatten it and move a different trajectory if we act now. What we need right now is solidarity and trust in our authorities and trust in each other. And it is much better that if your mate comes into work that you say, hey, you go home right now. Um, you you know you have to go home. Then you're calling the calling the cops. We need to be in this together, and we need to support each other and support our most vulnerable populations. And moving towards a criminal model, I can tell you now, as someone who's who's worked on, on in this field for for a decade, um, criminalising anything to do with health will always make health worse. That's a very strong message, and I think that's something that we should absolutely take on board here and around the world. Now, just one. Uh, as, as we get towards the end of this, I know you've got, uh, you've got important conversations to have, important work to do. Um, you talked before about the Wuhan situation and the origins um, of this uh, outbreak. I mean, what, you talked a lot about the importance of government response, information sharing. I mean, how mm. big a stuff up and would it have made a difference had the Chinese authorities sort of acted earlier rather than covering it up? I mean, it's all sort of been forgotten now in the flurry of activity, but of course, at the time, doctors were being arrested for diagnosing mm-hmm. the illness. And, and things like that nature as, a, as essentially the system try to manage up um, to hide, mm-hmm. uh, hide the problem emerging. I mean, how big a problem was that delay at the beginning to where we are today? I, I think we will get some really interesting, you know, um, counterfactual models or, or sort of post hoc models that look at, look at exactly that, that if this was reported. Um, you know, again, this, this ties into the, the, the point that I was just making there. We know that an a system that is um, that shares information, that is transparent, that is based in on public health principles and is based on human rights, um, including the right to health and the right to everyone to be health, like healthy and, and, and sorry, the right for everyone to have their health protected by the government. Um, we know that those systems are much better at responding to infectious diseases, and so measures that discourage notification, that puni- that penalise um, individuals speaking out or reporting or a bureaucracy that deliberately slows down the sharing of information upwards and the reactions or out of concern of potential punishment. We, we know that already. We know that, that that makes health worse. So I think it will be very unsurprising if we have 
um, you know, after action reviews that sort of look at if we had had action in by the Wuhan government in early January. So even when this was being reported globally, but if Wuhan specifically, we'd seen action in early January, um, rather than keeping it, keeping the lid on things uh, whilst the, the local party, like the, the regional meetings were being held, um, then I think, uh, you know, they're, they're quite quite conceivably could have been an appropriate um, response that con- that mitigated and, and, and contained the outbreak uh, much earlier at a, a much earlier stage. Um, the nature of exponential growth means as long as you can get it, the earlier you get in, the more lives saved um, and the, the, the economics, <laughs> like, I mean, the economics aren't really what's going to be at play here, but, um, you know, that's uh, the earlier you intervene, the, the less the impact. Um, I don't know how helpful that's going to be going forward because uh, there's a um, uh, we're going to have a, a long way before we get to those sorts of after action reviews. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think that that will definitely be uh, definitely be a, a point of many many PhDs to come. Sounds like you've got one in the making there for yourself. But um, h- how do we uh, future proof ourselves against future pandemics? I'm sure there's someone that's thought about these for a very very long time. Probably been jumping up and down. Um, yeah. producing reports saying that we're not prepared yeah. for pandemics, we're not prepared for pandemics and being ignored. What are the things that, you know, we obviously need to control this outbreak now, but what are the real things that we need to be doing to future-proof ourselves against future problems like this? Yeah, we need um, a couple of things. The first is we need investment in strong domestic healthcare systems. You know, we are incredibly lucky to have Medicare in Australia and we should not be cutting it, we should not be underfunding it, we should be supporting our systems Um to be able to to have the have the capacity to prepare for for pandemics like this, let alone everyday health of Australians, and that that's around the world, universal healthcare around the world. So ensuring that healthcare is affordable, it's available, it's acceptable, it's accessible, and it's quality around the world. Um, the other the there are a range of different capacities. There's a under the piece of international law called the international health regulations. There are these core capacities that countries are obligated to Im- implement. Um, there is an external evaluation available of countries uh, to assess whether they've met those those requirements. Um, and so there are toolkits, there are frameworks, and there are legal obligations that already exist for pandemic preparedness. And you know, yes, we have been jumping up and down for the last uh, last ten years. Um, uh, and longer. So investment in not just our own countries, but investment in the health systems and uh, pandemic preparedness of other countries around the world, because we're interconnected. If this pandemic has shown us anything, is an outbreak anywhere, is um, is a public health threat everywhere. Um, and rather than placing blame on countries, it's about building up their support and their capacity to detect, uh, to prevent, detect and respond to these outbreaks in the future. Well, Alex, it's been a hell of a conversation. I am, uh, well, I'm certainly more informed. Though. I don't know if I'm any less alarmed, but um, to, to bring some kind of levity to this conversation, I normally find some clunky way to segue, though I can't possibly think of one um, for the final question about a barbecue at Alex's place with three foreigners. Now, it is three, which it does make it in under your uh, number of small gatherings, so we can still go up um, Though you might need to buy some stuff ahead of time and... Not, I can't guarantee everyone's going to make it there, but who are the three <laughs> foreigners at a barbecue at Alex's and, and why? Um, 
You know what? I actually, I, I might need you to ask me this question again, Misha, at some point because I have been so busy I haven't even been able to sit and think about uh, about who who I would invite to my invite to my barbecue. I think I'm I'm still in social isolation mode. Well, you know what? I'm going to let you off the hook. Ordinarily, I would don't let my guests out here without answering the question. But given that you're fighting the good fight um, on behalf <laughs> of Aussies uh, in the global debate, I think we can let you off the hook. But uh, look- I appreciate it. Hi, Diplomates fans. Uh, just a little bit of bonus content at the end of this episode. After we finished recording, Alex went away and got back in touch with me, and I've given her a second bite at the cherry in terms of the final oh-so-important, uh, very lame, hokey question that I ask all our guests. Um, I thought it's, I do like to make sure that we do get a good answer there from everyone, so um, Alex was super keen to make sure that she got her three guests in for her uh, self-isolating barbecue. So please, without further ado, listen to Alex. So the first person at my barbecue would be Anairan Bevan, Nai Bevan, the Welsh Labour Party politician who was the son of a coal miner and became the UK's Minister for Health. Um, he took the lessons that he learned from the medical society in his hometown, this, this coal mining town, and he established the National Health Service, which provided, as I'm sure people know, medical care free for all in the UK, regardless of their income. Um, you know, that was such a foundational moment in the emergence of an idea of universal health care and his book, In Place of Fear, um, I would say is a, you know, a must read during this outbreak. As we see health systems um, that have been gutted try to try to respond. The second person would be uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, not only because of her critical work on uh, establishing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is you know the foundation of our modern international human rights system, but I would want to hear more about this, you know, about the second Bill of Rights for the United States that you know, had been proposed um, to protect social and economic rights. And, you know, whether there are any lessons from that moment that could be applied to moving forward here in the United States about um, establishing some form of constitutional protection for health, for labour rights, um, you know, for these social and economic rights that uh, have been have been um, slowly cut, cut away here in the US. And then I think the final person I would want at a barbecue cause would be, um, I think, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I think I would want to hear more about her uh, campaigning. It's you know second to none. I think her ability to engage with her community, and then not just in you know here in New York City, but um, you know across the United States, is um, would be incredible to learn from. And I think she has an infectiously fun personality and charisma that she's managed to. Um, get across whilst also being um, incredibly sharp and well briefed um, and incisive in pushing forward um, rights here in the in the United States, uh, and I think that would make for you know those those three people together uh, would make for a um, not just a very f- fun and interesting barbecue, but perhaps the um, you know corral and and crystallize this movement that needs to happen uh in terms of of universal health care um and uh and economic rights in the united states and perhaps beyond it's been a uh, it's been a fantastic conversation really appreciate uh your insights and uh good luck with uh the, the fight against uh, the, not only this pandemic but all future pandemics thank you very much <laughs>
Thanks, Fisher. It's homework time, everyone. Please, before you go, jump on iTunes, rate and review the show. It really does help. If you enjoyed it, spread the word, get it out there. Thanks again. See you next time. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.